Thank you for beautiful music this morning. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter, for a sermon entitled Tough Passage. That's a great way to start, isn't it? I know your heart was all aflutter during the reading of the text this morning. I don't think that the unjust steward makes anyone's list of a favorite parable. The prodigal son, perhaps, the seed of the sower, the souls, for sure. But the unjust steward, not so much. In fact, I would say this is one of the most difficult texts in all the New Testament. Preachers purposely avoid it like the plague. I remember when I first started seminary that one of my cousins, first cousin, a registered nurse, very bright young lady, challenged me and called and said, whenever you figure out Luke 16, 1 through 13, would you give me a call? Like she thought it would take me three years of seminary to get to that. It's, it's actually taken longer, but give me a call because, quote, I just don't get it. Well, my cousin isn't the only one curious about this tough text. The story has stumped exegetes for ages. Commentator Plummer wrote a hundred years ago, I quote, the literature on this subject is voluminous and unrepaying. Topol recently said, the literature dealing with this parable is staggering and after all the effort expended, the meaning of the story still eludes us. And then Commentator Creed said, it's just an unedifying story, period. He didn't even try. The story is so odd and so difficult that 4th century Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate and others cited this text as an attempt to discredit Christianity as a religion of scoundrels. One noted Scholar read every interpretation he could get his hands on in the articles published in the Westminster Theological Journal and said, there's just a jungle of explanations. Well, as we start this less than lovely story of Luke 16, it starts out, you'll notice, with there was a certain rich man. There was a certain rich man who had a steward. Put plainly, there was a blue blood, filthy rich, who made his money, casting the burden on the back of the working class. Whenever you read in a parable, there was a certain rich man. There's a negative connotation there. I hope you're picking up on that. In fact, skip down to verse 19 of this same chapter. There was a certain rich man. You can't deny the two parables are side by side in the same chapter. And they both begin with, there was a certain rich man. Well, the character in verse 19 and following is not a good character to be sure. So we can suppose that this character in verse 1 the certain rich man is not a good character either. In fact, 
a couple of chapters over in Luke 18, we have the Luke's rich young ruler who chooses gold over God, leading the Lord to say how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Parables were quick stories. They depend upon stock characters with familiar themes. And the certain rich man, you can just go ahead and write it down, the certain rich man is never the good guy of the story. There was a certain rich man who had a steward. Well, put another way, the bad guy had a worse worker. Now, we're, getting, we're going downhill here. A steward in those days was someone who had control over the books and the business. The power of attorney, we might say, in our world. An absentee landlord, well, a certain rich man needed a steward. And word got around like it always gets around that the steward was squandering the rich man's money. I don't like what I hear. Look at verse 2. Says a rich man to the steward, Open up the books. We are looking for a cook. Give me an account of my money. The charges against the agent were that he had squandered the money. Now, look, you might probably only have to turn the page. Look over at chapter 15 and verse 13. You got to read all these parables together to get it. 1513, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there, there's our verb, squandered his estate with loose living. So in chapter 15 and in chapter 16, we have the same verb used in relation to money. Someone is squandering the money in the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the unjust steward. The money is being squandered. He was wasting the master's possessions, much like the younger son was wasting his father's estate on wine, women, and so, and the folly of this fraud made his master look like a fool, and so he had to act quickly, call in the unjust steward to save his own reputation. Now, as modern American readers, we are well familiar with book cooking, aren't we? When we wrote the book on book cooking, Enron, Tycho, WorldCom, all scandals that led the Sabanes-Oxley Act of 2002, which calls for an accurate and enhanced standard for the keeping up with the cash. Put, in a, put another way, it called for cor corporations to quit manipulating the money. Oh, it's easy enough to withhold the recording of expenses and rush the recording of revenues in such a way as to set off a bunch of bonuses for the big bosses and benefits up top while pulling the wool over the eyes of the customers and the investors. And we're we are accustomed to all that. And besides, we know that Bernie made off with the money, don't we? I want to know, said the certain rich man, what happened to my money? Where have all my goods gone? And finally, verse 2, you're fired. 
A certain rich man was usually bright and erudite, but on this particular occasion, he left a window of opportunity for the fraud to fool him again and again and again. For the moment, you see, the steward was still a manager of the rich man's money. He left a window when he fired him. And so the steward began to scheme. What am I going to do? He asked. This is verse 3. My back's no good. I can't dig ditches. I'm too proud to panhandle. What am I going to do? He wasn't willing to become part of the workers of this world who toil and sweat for their money. Now, remember, when Jesus is telling this parable, peasants would have made up most of his audience, so they didn't like the certain rich man, but they didn't like the steward anymore because he didn't want to receive their lot in life and have to pick up a shovel. So now the steward even becomes a more difficult character, the audience, the peasants who were hearing it, who worked with their hands. Well, I, I, I can't dig ditches, and I, I'm, I'm too proud. I'm too proud to panhandle. Now, in contrast to the parable of the prodigal son, you remember the parable of the prodigal son, the boy went and squandered the money on wine, women, and song, and he came back and said, I want to be my father's worker, right? I don't, I, I'm not worthy to be called a son anymore. I'm willing to pick up the shovel. He was feeding the pigs the pods. He's willing to go to work. But Unlike the younger son who squandered money and was willing to work, this unjust steward's not even willing to work for the money. He had to think of yet another way out. Verse 4, I've got it, he says. I know what I'll do. I can face the future smelling like a rose if I act fast and furious. He schemes to shave the amounts owed by his master's debtors. One by one, the text says, verse 5, How much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of old. No, 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 no. Quickly write down 50. Mark out a hundred. I've still got the power. Now you just owe him 50 to another. How much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of wheat. No, 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 that's too much. Take 20% off. Put down 80. And he went again and again to all the folks who owed the master his master money, and he cooked the books in such a way as to whittle away they're dead. You get the picture. The cooking of the books continues until he has a myriad of his master's customers who are now indebted not to the master, but to him forever. I won't be homeless. I can live with him. In fact, I gave him back 50 measures of all. For the moment, he pretended to be acting on behalf of his master, for he had the authority remaining to reduce the debt now for personal payback later. Now, all of this is going well. You, you're with me, I can tell. You're with me. We're all good, right? You're following the story. You're, you're, you're more in love with this parable than you've ever been. and you, you're, we, we got it. And then verse 8. I'm good too till I get to verse 8. 
And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And Jesus says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What? I mean, we're all good till Jesus says, follow the fraud. That's when you go, what? This is a guy who said, follow me. And now he's saying, be like him. Follow the fraud. And now you know why commentators have been perplexed by this parable for eons. And now you know why no preacher chooses to pounce on this odd passage. For Jesus says, be like him, the unjust steward. You would think Americans would love this parable. We love to cheat. We love money. There's nothing more American than cheating with money. Pick up the Wall Street Journal on any given day and read about some scoundrel squandering the money, some cheater cutting the corners, Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, away we go from the snake oil salesman of the 19th century to the stock manipulators of the 1920s, to the spitballers of modern baseball, to brace-excelling bikers doping to win the tour, to teachers from Philadelphia and Atlanta fixing the standardized test, America is full of cheats. Why don't we love this story? So prevalent is cooking the books in our culture that David Callahan wrote a book called The Cheating Culture, Why More Americans Are Doing Wrong to Get Ahead. The American way of cheating knows no boundaries. In recent years, it's been from the Air Force Academy all the way down to the hallowed halls of Harvard. The headlines scream scandal. In fact, a few years ago, you remember administrators at Harvard accused 125 students of cheating on a final exam, an allegation that Harvard graduate and author Eric Kester said reflects at Harvard what everybody knows, there is a culture of cheating at the school. In fact, Harvard's own newspaper reported that 42% of Harvard freshmen cheat on a test. This is Harvard, 42% cheat on a test. That's the smart guys. What the rest of us are going to do to keep up. In the midst of all this, Jesus walks up, points to the scoundrel, the fraud, the book cooker, and says, be like him. Well, four quick words to make this parable plausible. First of all, the word shrewd. It's there in verse 8. And the master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. The first word is shrewd. Lloyd Ogilvy, chaplain of the U.S. Senate at one time, tells a story of visiting with one of America's most successful businessmen on a cross-country flight. He'd risen from a very humble background to the immense wealth, and the chaplain said, I asked this great businessman, he had him corner on the plane for a moment, what is the secret of your success? He said, the man said it quickly, he said it in one word, shrewdness. 
shrewdness. I was shocked by his frankness, said Lloyd Ogilvie. He went on to say he spent every waking hour thinking, scheming, planning, developing, and putting deals together. In all, he tried to be completely honest with all affairs, shrewdness, single-mindedness, purposefulness. This businessman who had been so successful left nothing to chance. He worked hard to achieve his goals. All the power of his intellect, all the strength of his seemingly limitless energies, the determination of his iron will, the resources of his calculated discernment of people were all employed to accomplish his goal. Then the chaplain asked in his book, what if God's people were that shrewd about sharing the kingdom. Shrewdness. It sort of reminds us of Matthew 10, 16, where Jesus says, be wise as, you know it, serpents. Right? Now, serpent is no more attractive example for wisdom than the dishonest agent here, but both represent an, an essential characteristic of a disciple. We should be shrewd and we should be wise, even if we get bad models from which to learn those characteristics. You see, the listeners of the parable, which is us, are in the same situation as a dishonest steward. Now, follow this. The listeners of the parable are in the same situation as a dishonest steward. We, too, are threatened by an imminent disaster of our futures. The difference is our very souls are at risk. And we, like this steward, should take everything into our own hands and act quickly and wisely and diligently to shape the course of our future. When everything was at stake, the steward, the agent, staked everything on his daring course of action. And the worldling, such as this foolish fellow, can act astutely to protect their self-interest in this world, should not the disciples of Jesus seize the moment and act astutely to ensure their interest in the world to come, which is eternal. You see, the future didn't look good for the steward. The future doesn't look good for us unless we act quick, quickly and shrewdly to determine our eternal destiny. The second word is temporary. Jesus didn't praise him because he was a cheat. He, he praised him because he was shrewd. And then the next word, verse 9, is temporary. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they receive you into eternal dwellings. Call somebody this afternoon and read that text and say, tell me what that means. Let me read it again. You read this to them. And I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. Make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they receive you into eternal dwellings. Say, that passage has eluded me. Would you explain that to me, my friend? It's the word temporary. The wealth of this world should be used generously so that when the resources are gone, that disciple will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The wealth of this world should be used generously so that when the resources are gone, the disciple who's been a good steward will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
monetary resources that possess the power to distort value should be put to generous and serving use so that heaven will be pleased to accept the one who's been so generous. When the end comes and there's no more money available, it's temporary. The one who has seen into the future and acted shrewdly will have handled the resources and stewardship that God has given him so wisely that he will have an assured future. If you need an example from Luke, he's going to do Zacchaeus in chapter 19, who becomes all of a sudden a good steward of the many monies that God has given to him. The rich man in the parable of Lazarus had no mercy on the poor. I know you don't want to hear me say it, but the meaning of this parable is money and the use thereof. He follows it with the rich man. They're in the same chapter. It's about using your money wisely for eternal investments. One interpreter claimed, though I've not counted, that of Jesus' 38 parables, that 19 of them all come back to the use of money. Jesus is not commending his cheating. He's commending his shrewdness and how serious he is about his temporal future. And how could the children of the kingdom not be more shrewd about their eternal destiny and shrewdness seen in the wise management of money? There's a third word, not only shrewdness and temporary, but the word little. It's there in verse 10. He was faithful with very little thing is faithful also in much. And he was unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. The way one uses his money in this world, a testing ground will determine what one receives in the next world. You don't want to hear me say that either, but that's what the parable says. Who can entrust people with significant eternal things if they cannot manage merely worldly wealth? You don't think I'm right? Look at verse 11. He says it in verse 10, 11, and 12, three different ways. You can't help but get it. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous money, who can entrust you with true riches? Or verse 12, if you missed it, and you have not been faithful with the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You see, Jesus presumes that our wealth does not belong to us, but rather we are stewards that it all belongs to God. And anything that we have is temporary in our hands, and it is little, and we are fools to think that it is ours, and we should not spend it as if it is ours. For God allows us to steward the wealth for the good of his kingdom. For if we are faithful in the little, that is today's money, God will bless us with the much, which is tomorrow's eternity. Here's a fourth and final word, master. You can't have two masters. You can't live your life for money and materialism. You cannot serve both money and God. Money is a great servant, but it is a terrible master. And you can have money and love God, but you cannot serve money and love God at the same time. So there's four words to make the meaning clear. 
shrewd, temporary, little, and master. Four words for those who would choose to be wise from the parable of the unjust steward. God does care about what we do in the management of his money, which we call our money. In fact, he says that our eternal destiny is reflected in the way we use mammon. And if we can't be trusted with the little here, he certainly won't give us the much there. And like this unjust steward, our futures are uncertain, and we must act shrewdly and quickly with unrighteous mammon so as to ensure our future. Now, I used to avoid this parable because I didn't know what it meant. Now I'm going to avoid the parable because I do know what it means. I used to not like it because I didn't understand it. Now I don't like it because I do understand it. You have to read it in the context of this portion of Luke. You can't miss it, the prodigal son and then the unjust steward, and the rich man and Lazarus, and then he goes on to the rich young ruler, and it's all about the use of one's wealth. God truly measures what we do with money. And how I use my mammon makes not only a temporary difference, but it makes an eternal difference. For if he can't trust me with little things, these little things here on earth, he certainly knows I couldn't handle a big eternity. The parable of the unrighteous or the unjust steward. There probably is no parable that should be more American than this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear the words of Jesus. Let us pray. God, help us to have a good perspective, for we cannot serve both you and money. Help us to be generous and open-handed with our tithes and our offerings. Help us to realize that we are managers of what is yours, and whatever we have is yours And that we must be faithful with a little if we ever expect much in eternity. God, may we be shrewd. May we realize that this world and its resources are temporary. We spend half of our life upsizing and the second half downsizing. May we realize that we must be 
shrewd with the little to get the much. And may we always choose the right master. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.